Alrighty, open up your Bible, Zechariah chapter 9. I cannot, I got to tell you, I cannot wait to get into this. <clears throat> so, we are entering into a very special place, folks. We are entering into a very special time here in our study of the book of Zechariah. This is a time, okay, this is a place where this is called the incomparable treasury of prophetic truth. There is no comparison to anything in prophetic truth. And it's going to come up from the verses that we will be, the chapters we'll be looking at from here on out. For the most part, Zechariah will be speaking of things that are in the future for his time, things that are future for his time. Some things have already come about. Some things have already occurred, and there is much yet to happen. That eschatological future that we as believers are looking forward to is still to happen. So chapters 9 through 14 probably have the most influence on the writers of the New Testament Gospels than any other prophetic work. When I wanted to teach through an Old Testament book, I was sitting down with my son-in-law. We were on vacation. <clears throat> this has got to be two or three years ago. And I said, you know, if you were to preach a New Testament book, I mean, if you were to preach an Old Testament book, and he does all the time, which one would you preach if you were me? And he immediately said, Zechariah. And I said, okay, why do you want me to preach Zechariah? He says, because Zechariah is the most New Testament book in the Old Testament. Zechariah is the most New Testament book in the Old Testament. And I said, that's great. I'll do it. And here we are. We're in chapter 9. We've completed the eight visions. Those were used to encourage the people of God, the Jewish people, to encourage them. He wanted to encourage them to return to the land because some of them had been free, free, uh, freed from Babylon, but they hadn't all come back. Come back to the land. Come back here. What we want to do is we want to get busy. We want to get busy to make sure that we take care of the completion of the wall and we take care of the completion of the temple. Most of what we've been studying here has really been about encouragement. Encouragement to Israel and Zechariah's day and, and the prophecy that we are about to engage in, <clears throat> we're to look at, is to be an encouragement for us as individuals. <clears throat> I believe it is very helpful for us as New Testament believers to see the works of God, to be able to glory in the works of God, to know that we serve a good God, and also at the same time to know that he's completely sovereign. He sovereignly rules over all of creation. He sets things in order, and then he carries them out to perfection. He misses nothing. And so we're going to look at uh, Zechariah chapter 9. We're not going to get the whole chapter done, but let me read a portion of it for us. And I'm, I'm going to give you the outline, the overall outline, because I'm going to dissect this chapter into four parts. Four parts. That's what we're going to look for. Part number one is the plan of the Messiah. We see that in verses 1 through 8. The plan of the Messiah. Part number two. The theophany of the Messiah. That's verses 9 and 10. Then the third part would be the covenant of the Messiah. 
verses 11 through 13. And then the fourth part will be the victory of the Messiah, 14 through 17. I'll remind you of those as we go along, but if you're going to keep any kind of message and uh, 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 any kind of notes on this, and you come back next week, you'll know exactly where we are. First, we're going to start with the plan of the Messiah. That's the first part. What is he, that is God, planning for his people? And he's already planned it. Let's look at it. Chapter 9. Verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrash with Damascus as its resting place. For the eyes of men, especially of all the tribes of Israel, are toward the Lord. And Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, for Tyre herself built herself a fortress and piled up silver like dust and gold like the mire of the streets." Behold, the Lord will dispossess her and cast her wealth into the sea, and she will be consumed with fire. Ashkelon will see it and be afraid. Gaza, too, will writhe in great pain. Also, Ekron, for her expectation has been compounded, confounded, I'm sorry. How, moreover, the king will perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon will not be inhabited. And a mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. And I will remove their blood from their mouth and their detestable things from between their teeth. They too, then they also will be a remnant for our God. And be like a clan in Judah and Ekron like a Jebusite. But I will camp around my house because of an army because of him who passes by and returns, and no oppressor will pass over them anymore, for now I see with my eyes. Verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt of the fowl of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. We'll only read that for now. We'll get the rest of it in at another point. But here we are. We're looking at the first part, the plan of the Messiah. And you, you hear all of those names. You, you hear of Ashdod and uh, and Ashkelon, and you hear of all of these different cities, and you wonder, what in the world does that have to do with anything? What in the world does that have to do with God's plan? Well, we're going to try to unpack that for you. Uh, verse 1, the burden of the Lord, uh, the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrash with Damascus as its resting place, for the eyes of men, especially of all the tribes of Israel, are toward the Lord. It's interesting here. Very interesting. Uh, matter of fact, Pastor John was talking about the New American Standard Bible translation. And it's interesting here that the um, translators call this a burden. It's really an oracle that's being told here. It's an oracle. It's really an introduction to a heavy message. This is an important message for the people of God. A message that should carry weight with it. It would be like telling your 
five-year-old child, don't go play in the street. It's that kind of thing. You're keeping them from getting hurt. Well, this is the message here that, that um, Zechariah is passing on from God to God's people. Burden is used again in uh, Zechariah 12.1, which gives us a whole different oracle, and we'll look at that later on. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. It basically is saying this, listen, listen, take note, make sure you emphasize this. It's almost like put it in bold and highlight it. You need to be hearing these things. This particular heavy and weighty message is a prophetic message. It's a prophetic message of judgment. That's what God is giving to these people. He's judging what's going to happen. He's going to tell them this is what's going to happen. The people don't actually see it right away. It's not going to be for years, but this is the judgment. It means that it's something that you have to bear under. You have to lift up. Friends, Zechariah wants all to know that these are not just his manufactured words. These are not just words that he's making up, but these words are words of divine origin. These are words that are coming from an almighty and holy God. And he wants them to listen and hear it. This word, uh, the, the, the use of this word massa indicates an authoritative divine utterance and usually has a pronouncement of judgment attached to it. There is a catastrophic event to come and you ought to be listening. Now, if we knew that tomorrow morning at 4.30 in the morning, there was going to be a 6.8 earthquake in Northridge, we would probably do something about it if we lived in Northridge, right? We would listen to that message if we knew that that's what's going to happen. That's the kind of thing that he's telling them here. It's going to be an earthquake. It's going to be this life-shattering situation. Says the land of Hadrash. What in the world is that? This is the only place that that particular city, that particular area is mentioned. There's much speculation as to what it is. But my guess, okay, now notice I said guess, and you have to go outside of scripture, and that's why I say it's a guess, is that it was in Syria somewhere, okay? Because Damascus is also mentioned, and it says near there. So let's put it in Syria. The burden of the word of the Lord is against Hadrash. For whatever reason, there was a, a pronouncement being made against that particular area. Friends, this is a contemporary judgment against Hadrash. It's a picture of what will happen in future judgments. And it says this, for the eyes of men, for the eyes of men, especially the tribes of Israel are toward the Lord. What happens in this judgment People's eyes begin to turn towards God. They go, wow, I can't believe he did that. Now it says, especially the tribes of Israel, that's wonderful. But it also means the eyes of men are turning there. Not all of them, but some of them. They're going to see this great work that God is going to do. And they're going to say, there is a God and we need to go worship him. The true God, the one true God. That's what's happening here. For the eyes of men, especially of all the tribes of Israel, are toward the Lord. Friends, when the plan of God begins to come to mature and expand, everyone's eyes are going to be turned toward him. Could you imagine, and I know none of you are going to be there, but your time of tribulation and God is doing his work. Could you imagine what's going to happen? 
Those people that have heard the gospel and have refused it, they're going to have their eyes start to turn toward God because they're going to know that's the reason that this is happening. This is sort of like that. You need to make sure that you're paying attention. This message, undoubtedly, undoubtedly this message is there in preparation for them to keep watching for his return. Remember, they were told about the Messiah. He's going to come. He's coming. He's coming soon. They're supposed to be watching for him, but the Jews missed it the first time. Friends, since this is a result clause that's used here by Zechariah, the result of God's judgment will cause his people to turn their eyes towards him. Also, the eyes of Hadrash and Damascus and other cities will as well do that. Zechariah now moves on to other cities. Besides Hadrash, we have Hamath, we have Tyre and Sidon. Even these cities will not escape the judgment. If you live during these days, you would say, but that's Tyre and that's Sidon. They've never, ever been conquered. They've never, ever been overthrown. Let's look at verses two and three. And Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, for Tyre built herself a fortress and piled up silver like dust and gold like the mire of the streets. Now, if I go over your home today, I don't think I'm going to find a bunch of dusty silver hanging around. Although it's $19 an ounce, I don't think you just want to have it hanging around. But what about gold? It's going to be like mire. It's like the, the streets that are in mud, and it's going to be piled up like that. How much is gold today? $1,600 an ounce? This was a rich city. Nobody ever came into this city and stole their goods. Nobody ever overthrew them and took away their booty, so to speak. Tyre in this day was a self-sustaining city. It was a rich city. It had incredible, incredible wealth. It was along the coast of Phoenicia. Now, I know most of you don't know where Phoenicia is, but modern-day Lebanon, right off the coast of modern-day Lebanon, Tyre had staggering, impressive defenses. It was a city along the coast with walls that were 27 feet thick and 150 feet high. By the way, the city was off the coast. There was, I think it was a mile or a half a mile at least, of water between them and the shore. So it was, in a sense, inaccessible. You couldn't just go there and conquer them. You either have ships or somehow you needed to get a land bridge there, <clears throat> just as a point of information. Babylon had tried to take Tyre. Nebuchadnezzar went there. Nebuchadnezzar thought he could steal their gold and their silver since it's just hanging around the streets, right? He was there for 13 years, and he didn't get to conquer them. 13 years of siege on that city, and he couldn't overthrow them. Nothing could he say that he took from them. Verse 3, for Tyre built herself a fortress and piled up silver like dust and gold like the mire streets. It says in verse 2 that the, um, the, the Zechariah says that they, Tyre and Sidon were very wise. Folks, this is not the wisdom of God. This is the wisdom of the world. Because of their shrewdness, they were able to accumulate wealth, lots of wealth. 
That was because of their trading abilities and those kinds of things. But even this wisdom, although great, in building a dynasty and keeping the city safe for centuries, it cannot withstand the clear power of the Messiah. And we're going to point out how the Messiah was able to overthrow that city. You can have silver piled up like dust. You can have gold piled up like mire in the streets that you will keep as long as the judgment of God doesn't enter in. Riches do not save, folks. Accumulation of wealth does not save. Save. You know, it's not a, you know, the man with the most at the end wins. No. You know, John D. Rockefeller didn't win. Billionaire didn't win. The other wise city that we mentioned here is Sidon, and also that is a Phoenician city of renown. Look at verse 4. Behold, the Lord will dispossess her and cast her wealth into the sea, and she will be consumed with fire? Those are fighting words, aren't they? The Lord is going to do that. He's going to take that city that Babylon couldn't conquer in 13 years, and he's going to what? He's going to dispossess her and cast her wealth into the sea? I love Zechariah using the word behold once again. Listen. Here is what I have to say. The wealth will be thrown into the sea. The one who overthrows them doesn't even care about the wealth. Throw it away. The city will be consumed with fire. How in the world is that going to happen? We are introduced here, folks, to a pronouncement from God. This is the Messiah's judgment upon this great city. God has plans for his enemies. As he has plans for his children, he also has plans for his enemies. Friends, this includes today. His enemies will be dealt with. We don't have to worry about it. God will take care of it. An enemy of God will feel the wrath of God. Nothing has changed, whether it's Hadrash, Damascus, or Los Angeles City. It doesn't matter. There's still going to be a judgment on those who don't follow him. Now, A question that I asked myself as I was studying through this, if I were there and I was in Tyre and they heard about this pronouncement from Zechariah, would I be trembling in my boots? Probably not. Probably not. You know why? Because I would have been a pagan, number one. Number two is I would have remembered the siege that Nebuchadnezzar had of 13 years, plus, oh, I forgot the other siege. There was another one for five years that the the Assyrians came in and and they tried to attack the city and they tried to conquer the city and they didn't get to do it. So here you got 18 years of trying to overtake this city and they couldn't do it. So I'd probably be sitting in my nice comfortable chair looking at my silver and gold and not worrying about it. Not worrying about it. Now, we need to give you a little bit of a history lesson here. This is not in the scriptures, but this is how God did do it. Okay, how the Messiah's plan came to fruition. And we see that in 333-332 BC. Somewhere around there, the Macedonian miracle happens. And we have the man from Macedonia come. That's, by the way, the title of the message, so you understand why it is the title. Alexander the Great attacked this city of Tyre. 
And in seven months, he conquered this city. He flattened it. He burned it. He threw all the wealth into the sea. That's what he did. What happened is is that his army began to fill the gap between the uh, shore of Lebanon, let's say, or Phoenicia, and all the way out to Tyre. He filled in the gap, and then he was able to conquer the city. Even though it was an island, it no longer became an island. As a matter of fact, to this day, it is a peninsula because they filled it in so well. They used whatever they could find. There was an old city of Tyre that was on the coast, and, and it had been destroyed in a previous battle or whatever. And they took all of the stuff from there, and they began to fill it in, and began to fill it in, and began to fill it in. By the way, the filling, fulfilling of this prophecy did not happen until 150 years after Zechariah wrote the prophecy. Maybe 200, somewhere between 150 and 200 years. Listen to what the consequences were of ignoring God, the one true God. Six to 8,000 men were massacred in Tyre. 2,000 additional men were crucified. And around 20,000, maybe all the way up to 30,000, if you include children, were sold into slavery. That's what happened. Verse four, behold, the Lord will dispossess her and cast her wealth into the sea. Tyre was consumed completely and thoroughly. Her pride did not save her. Her wealth did not save her. What happened is they were against God. They were against God's people. And God brought punishment against them, judgment against them. Alexander then moved on to other cities. We can see that was in verse 5. Ashkelon, we'll see it and be afraid. You know, if you see that happening to Tyre up the coast, and you're in Ashkelon down the coast, and, and you know, your city is not as well fortified, and it's, it's you're, you're ripe for picking here. You know that Alexander wants to conquer. That's why he came there from Macedonia or Greece or whatever you want to call that. And you're, you're looking there and you're going, wait a minute, what am I going to do? Well, there's other cities too. Gaza too were rife in, in great pain. Also, Ekron, for her expectation, has been confounded. Moreover, the king will perish from Gaza and Ashkelon will be, not be inhabited. Folks, those other cities are knowing they're going to feel that judgment. If you look at the history of the Old Testament, the history of the Jewish nation, these are the nations that they were always fighting against. They're always fighting against Tyre and Sidon and Phoenicia and the Philistines. We haven't gotten to the Philistines yet. But all of these that they've been fighting against, God is now bringing a judgment against them. That's part of the Messianic plan. I, I can imagine, okay, if I were living in one of those other cities that were mentioned here in verse five, I would be terrorized. Remember when we were on our tour bus and we were heading into Ashkelon and, and Randy comes up to me, that, that's our tour guide. And he says, Bill, they have some Scud missiles coming over from Gaza and, and they're bombing over in this area. Do you want to tell the people in the bus? I said, not on your life. I don't want to terrorize them. If the Scud muscle hits us, we'll all be in heaven. So who cares? I said, we'll do that in the morning. Let's have a good night's sleep, and then we can tell them. So as we're heading out of town, we tell them. (laughs) 
I mean, why, why get everybody all excited? I mean, it's not like the coronavirus or anything. <laughs> I can imagine that if I were living in those cities, I would be terrorized. I, I would flee. I would want to get out of there. Tyre, the great and mighty city, fell in seven months? What chance would these other cities have? What mighty, against this mighty army, it's, it's impossibility. These cities were no match for the marching and conquering army of Macedonia. Gaza fell in two months with some of the city, uh, citizens of the other cities just running, just taking off, not being anywhere to be found, hightailing it into the country, getting away. Alexander terrorized these nations and cities. He terrorized them. They were scared to death. Ashkelon was afraid. And then it says, and it will not be inhabited. Gaza right in great pain. Ekron was confounded. In other words, they didn't know what to do, so they took off. Gaza, it says here about his king, will perish. Well, the story is this, and again, this is not in the scriptures, but the story is this, is that they took the king of Gaza, they tied him up to the back of a, um, uh, of a chariot, and they began to drag him around the city until he was dead. That's Alexander. That's the kind of conquering he does. He he doesn't take no from anybody. He expects that you're going to bow down to him. Listen to this, verse six. And a mongrel race, uh, you can look at the footnote and see what it says about that in the NAS. I can't say that word in church will dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. There's something that you need to note here. In the middle of this verse, the subject changes from the third person to the first person. And it says, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. You see, God had it out for the Philistines. The Philistines had hurt his nation quite often. They had terrorized his nation quite often. He had They had um, uh, done so many things against the Jewish people. He now says, I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. This nation whose arrogance was well known will have their pride cut off. This action is all in the plan of God. You sit back and you say, but what about me? What does this have to do with me? Here I am in 2020. I want to get good 2020 vision here. God hasn't changed. You have enemies. Maybe they're at work. Maybe they're in your family. God hasn't changed. You continue to be faithful. You continue to walk with him. That's what this story is telling me. We'll get to the rest of it. The nation whose arrogance was well known will now have their pride cut off. The action that's uh, done here will not preclude any kind of judgment because guess what our God does? He saves, doesn't he? Because you once were enemies of God. You once were haters of God. But in while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's what he does. And there's going to be an indication here that God is still going to accept them after repentance, of course. Historically, the Philistines were a source of trouble for the Israel. Now they are being told that they're going to be accepted into the family of God. We see that in verse 7. 
and I will remove their blood from their mouth and their detestable things from between their teeth. In the Hebrew, that means vegetables. (laughs) You believe me, right? Uh, uh, Green salad. That's what it means. You didn't believe me. I was wondering if it would or not. (laughs) Uh, No, that's not what it says in the Hebrew. Then they also will be a remnant for our God and be like a clan of Judah and Ekron like a Jebusite. Zechariah is describing pagan ritual, probably ingesting of unclean foods. And I I make the joke, it's vegetables, but uh, anyway. These forbidden foods were just the tip of the problem. More than likely, it was pork. More than likely, it was eating food, meat with blood in it, because the Jewish nation was supposed to drain the blood before they ate it, those kinds of things. There's another problem. They were eating with their mouth open. And moms know that that's condemned in the Bible. I've heard moms say that all all the time to their kids. Chew with your mouth closed. Yeah, so we know that that's condemned. These folks here are having an orgy of gouging on food with the blood still in it and, and actually, in a sense, making it a sport making it a sport. It's a disgusting picture. Moms are always instructing their kids this way, and so don't eat with your mouth open. And they tell their husbands as well. (laughs) An encouragement is found in this verse, though. Zechariah says this, then they also will be a remnant for our God and be like a clan in Judah. Did you hear that? There's going to be a remnant in the Philistines? There's going to be a remnant for our God? Yes. The plan of God from the beginning has always been to save people. He, he offers the gospel. The Jewish nation was supposed to be that. They didn't. They were supposed to go forth and, and give the good news, so to speak, and, and see people come to Christ, to God. But they didn't do that. The plan of the Messiah is to redeem the pagan. Oh, frankly, folks, look around. Anybody here Jewish? Well, I know we do have some Jewish people here, but very few. The rest of you are pagans. And he wanted to save you. He wanted to save you. The plan of God was to do that right from the beginning. You know, as detestable as our sin is, and as revolting as our sin is, Messiah's plan is still in force to save repentant sinners, even to this day. And and that's why you hear from this pulpit, pulpit across the way here for sure, repent, come to know Christ. Yes, that's the work of God. Repent of your sins on a daily basis. That's you and God, you recognizing your sin, you dealing with your sin. Somehow, I'm accused sometime of being a monergistic, and I don't want to get into the whole thing, that somehow it's me working my salvation out. Well, that's forgetting the rest of the verse there in verse 13. For God is in you to work and to will his good pleasure. He's calling you to repentance. You need to be working out your salvation. You need to be doing something about it and not just leave it up to him. You can't be sitting in Tyre 
looking at all your wealth and not worried about anything. You need to be doing something about your relationship with Christ on a regular basis. It doesn't just happen. You know, as detestable as we are, he still, Messiah's plan is to save repentant sinners. Now, I want you to know there's even a partial fulfillment of this prophecy before we get out of the Bible. That partial fulfillment we can find in Acts chapter 8, verse 40. Why don't you go there? Acts chapter 8, verse 40. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 40, it says, But Philip found himself at Azotus. Azotus. And as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Huh. Azotus is the Roman name for Ashdod. It is one of the cities that had the pronouncement, and now you have one of the cities with a gospel witness going out to them from, the, from Philip in Acts chapter 8. My goodness, God's plan doesn't miss even to the smallest detail and letting us know how much he cares and how much he's going to fulfill it. Now, folks, I couldn't wait to get to verse 8. Verse 8 of Zechariah is just absolutely incredible. But I will camp around my house. Folks, did you see uh, God camped around your house last night? Did you see the Messiah camped around your house last night, your apartment, your car, if you live in your car, wherever he is, maybe you got a tent, I mean, I don't know, homeless people. Did you see, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, it says here, but I will camp around my house. He does. He does. He cares about us. He loves us. And you say, well, how come I got robbed last night? That has nothing to do with it. He's still there. You're alive today. That's the way you got to look at it. But I will camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns. And no oppressor will pass over them anymore, for now I have seen with my eyes. Basically saying, no one's going to harm Israel. To this day, they're still there. Even when, in 1948, it became a nation, even before that, they were still there. They were still all over the place. See, the plan of the Messiah is clearly laid out. He will camp around his house. He will camp around his people. He will camp around his followers. He will protect and he will care for them like no human king or president or parliamentarian could ever do. He's going to protect them. But I will camp around my house. Folks, this is an almighty God telling us that he camps around his people. And I ask myself, I've been asked to do a message on fear in May in, in England. What do I have to fear? Is there anything I have to fear? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
So why do I get all befuddled? Why do I get all tight in my thinking and wonder what's going to happen next week? What's going to happen here? Anxiety and all of those kinds of things. I, I think of that and I'm going, wait a minute. This is the message I'm, I may need to bring, just part of this. But let's put this into context. You see, God is a covenant-keeping, covenant-loving God. He's the God of the Bible, and so our hope is to be in him. But as we put this into context, this prophecy is partially fulfilled all, uh, uh, as well through the mighty Macedonian king, Alexander, in the middle of his attacking of Tyre, by the way, Israel or Jerusalem is only maybe a day's travel from where he's in Tyre, maybe two days, okay? The Jews must have been back in Jerusalem and they're terrorized and they're thinking about it. And Alexander's over there conquering them. Well, when is he gonna come and conquer us? This prophecy was written 150 to 200 years before it even happened. But I will camp around my house. Zechariah is telling them and us that he will defend his chosen people. But Alexander is there conquering all of the Middle East. You know, Alexander's original plan was to go all the way to India. Yeah, he was, I mean, he may even have reached part of it, but he was heading down there towards India, maybe up in Pakistan. But at least that's what he was thinking of conquering is that whole area. And God says, I will defend my people. How in the world did God do this for Israel? How in the world did he do this for Israel? Well, let's look at it historically. Now, remember, this is outside of scripture, but historical evidence is quite clear. Uh, Josephus is a writer. Now, everything that he says is not necessarily true, but on this, Josephus is correct. Alexander visited Jerusalem during this time period. Now, before he visited Jerusalem, he had sent them a note and said, I want this, and I want this, and I want this. And he was told no by the high priest. You can't have it. He wanted to conquer everybody. And while in the area, he even conquered the Samaritans. But he spared the city of Jerusalem. Why in the world would he spare the city of Jerusalem? Because God said, I will camp around my people. That's why. Because God said, I, I will camp around my people and I will not let anybody hurt them. While as Alexander was sieging Tyre, he sent a note to that high priest and he asked him for some things or told him to give him some things. And the high priest said, nope, can't do it. I've got a, a peace agreement with Darius and I, King Darius and I cannot do it. Not until he dies can I actually give you what you're asking for. From reports and from what Josephus has to say, Alexander was furious. Couldn't wait to get to Israel. Couldn't wait to get to Jerusalem and just take that high priest apart. According, accordingly, after that seven-month siege, he headed towards Jerusalem. Jadis, the high priest, was terrified. He had already turned him down. He could see that army is going to come. If they can 
overtake if, if he can overtake Tyre, what, what is Jerusalem going to do? We, we haven't even had the walls fully built. So how are we going to do that? And they called upon the people to make sacrifice. Make sacrifice to God, asking for deliverance. Again, this is not in scripture, but it's reported that Jadis was visited upon by God that evening. God told him to take courage. That Jadis was to have the people adorn the city with wreaths and all kinds of things and open up the gates, open them wide, because the gates were not going to hold back that army anyway. Open up the gates wide and go out to visit, go greet the conquerors as they come. They were also told, all the people were supposed to, told to wear white linen cloth or white cloth and, and go out there together in this whole entourage of people to welcome Alexander. The high priest was told to wear his mitre, his purple and scarlet robes, and a gold plate on his chest with the name of God on it. With the name of God on it. Alexander saw all of this and he approached the high priest and prostrated himself before the high priest, the one that he was going to kill, the one that he was going to tear apart. When asked, what in the world are you doing? He said, I was not prostrating before the man. Before the name, the name of that God the God. Alexander is still being asked, why? And he tells them. He said, while I was back in Macedonia, I had a dream. The planning of the conquering of the world, and that's what he wanted to do, conquer the world. And he had a dream, and he saw in that dream a man in purple and scarlet with a mitre on his head and people in white, and he had a breastplate on with a name of God on it. And that person said to him, I give you permission to conquer the world. Now, I don't know if all of that happened, but think about it. You're not gonna conquer this world unless God gives you permission to do it. You're not gonna become the president of the United States unless God gives you permission to do it. You're not going to remain there unless God gives you permission to do it. Folks, that's our God. That's whom we serve. That's whom we love and, and we worship. He's a conquering God, but at the same time, he's a protecting God. And I think some of us forget sometimes that we are being protected. Now, let me give you a few suggestions as a takeaway from this, this passage this glorious text of scripture. I just want to make a few suggestions. Let's just, uh, since we're running out of time, let me give you three of them. I'll give you all of them. Number one, our God reigns. Our God reigns. Powerful, almighty, sovereign over all the nations. You know, coronavirus, it doesn't matter. God's over that. He's allowing it. It doesn't escape his view even over a falling, unbelieving spouse. How about that? 
Well, you need to do what the Bible tells you. I, I get to ask that all the time. Well, pastor, my husband's not doing this, but he's not a Christian. So you need to be the first Peter three wife. Or if the husband's the other way around, you need to serve your wife. You need to love her as Christ loved the church. And how did he love? He loved even before they became Christians. That's what we have to do. Our God reigns. Messiah's plan as shown in this text is a demonstration of the sovereign will of God. It's being orchestrated for his purposes and those purposes of this folks, his glory, our good, but his glory is first. And I got to tell you, as I read through that story and I had not heard this before, I went, praise God. What a mighty God we have. You know, I went back to the story of Hezekiah and there's 185,000 soldiers sitting out the city of Jerusalem and Hezekiah goes into his prayer closet and, and God says, don't worry about it. 185,000 soldiers, they wake up in the morning, well, guess what, they're all dead. That's what God can do. They're all dead. Well, Alexander thinks he has done the conquering and the overtaking. No, no, he hasn't done that. It says in this particular, ver, uh, this particular chapter, verse four, it says, behold, the Lord will dispossess her. The Lord did it, not Alexander. The second thing I want to take away, another suggestion, not only that our God reigns and, and praise God he does. Number two, this does not come as a shock, but there is a certainty of judgment a certainty of judgment. Ran into a lady I hadn't seen at Grace Church in 15 years this morning. And we get into a conversation. And she's telling me about relatives that are going on their way to hell because they're refusing the gospel. And of course, it brings up to my mind my own mother, who on her, own de- on her deathbed would not accept the God, would not listen to the gospel. just that's what's going to happen sometimes folks there's a certainty of judgment and i made sure that i told her about that judgment i made sure that i said this is what's going to happen but you mean i'm not going to be with your dad if i go to heaven i said well when you were here on earth you didn't do too well with him (laughs) why would you want to be in heaven with him and not do too well or in hell i mean you know the, the 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 total ridiculous logic that's there. Folks, there's certainty of judgment. Those who ignore it, those who reject the Messiah will be judged. They will be judged. Number three, this is the third one that I'd like us to take away from this. I hope you have a confidence, a wonderful confidence in your God. That's what I get from this is I have a confidence that he's going to do what he's going to do, when he's going to want to do it and how he's going to want to do it. And you know what? Thank you. Thank you. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. That's what we have to get out of this is is trust in the midst of fear. I mean, I can't imagine being in in the Mediterranean area with Alexander the Great. I mean, he was not a nice guy. I mean, he slew people. He put them behind uh, chariots and dragged them around town. 
cut him up and so, gave him to uh, his uh, um, animals and all kinds of things. And yet, we have a God that overcomes all of that. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm not going to die and I'm not going to be persecuted and I'm not going to be whatever. No, I trust in the Lord. I remember when before, way before I came on staff at Grace Church, I was in Chicago, Illinois with my boss, who's uh, out of New York, a nice Jewish man who I did give him Isaiah 53 um, when I witnessed to him. And, and he says, you know, I could fire you. And I said, yeah, you could. It's no big deal. <laughs> really? This is a good job you have here. I said, that's no big deal. God will have something else for me. God will have something else for me. So you know what? He, it, it just threw him that somebody would not want to bow down to him. Folks, we bow down to one, the supreme one, God Almighty. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage where we see the Messiah and his plan. We see so much more about the, the Messiah coming up, Lord. We pray that as we, as, as your children, we continue to be faithful to the word of God, continue to be faithful to the God of the word. And that, Lord, you would be blessed, glorified, exalted, worshiped, praised because of all that you've done for us, unworthy, completely, and thoroughly. You have made us worthy. In your name, amen.